highest podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God, comparing Scripture to Scripture, not approaching the Bible to try to figure out how it can support what I believe, but find out what the Bible says so that I can know what I believe. Our first question today comes from a question that was asked at the end of our last Q&A last Saturday, and the question was about the Bride of Christ. But more than that, that in the Old Testament, Israel is called God's wife, and in the New Testament, the church is called the Bride. So what were my thoughts on that? And um, here's some interesting things that maybe we need to think about. Number one, the church is called a lot of different things in the New Testament. It's, first of all, the word church is ekklesia, which was a group of people that met for in a city, in a Greek city, and had power. Uh, also, the church is called the bride, the family of God, the house of God, a building built with bricks, the temple of God, our bodies are the temple of God, and the body of Christ. So, how are we the bride, the temple of God, and the body of Christ at the same time? The truth is, all of these things that are said about us are said in their own initial context. And so, you've got to go to each one of the context to be able to figure out what is being said. So, when the Bible tells us that we are the bride, what is he trying to tell us about our relationship with Christ? When the Bible tells us we're the temple of God, what is it telling us about our relationship with Christ? The Old Testament even becomes more important to understand it in context. God's saying different things and doesn't mean that they just stand. They stand in their context. For example, Israel is called a daughter in the Old Testament, a chaste virgin, a wife, a bride, a man, an old man, a camel, a donkey, and a harlot when they were unfaithful. Now, yeah, she's called a wife in the Old Testament, but there's a context as to what God was trying to bring about when he called them that, and in the New Testament as well. The truth is that the bride of Christ is referenced as the city of Jerusalem coming down from heaven at the end of the book of Revelation, and is not just the bride of Christ in the church, but the bride of Christ is everybody that ends up in new, the New Jerusalem. It's Israel. It's the church. It's all of us. Now, uh, we're going to get to, in the book of Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we'll be talking about that. Um, but we uh, do see two times in the New Testament where the church is called the bride, which talks about that relationship of having uh, of the closeness, of an excitement, of being a, being right with him now, like a bride who is, is getting ready to get married, is excited about the groom and the relationship that they can have. And the Bible talks about us having a righteous relationship now for our Savior. And that's really what it's talking about. But each of them is their own context. And the bride of Christ, there is, there's definitely controversy about it. There are those that say that the bride of Christ is Israel. There are those that say the bride of Christ is the church, but really the bride of Christ is everyone. And we see that near the end of the book of Revelation, and it becomes very clear for us. Um, all of the things that the Bible says about us just need to be read in context so that you can see when it's talking about being 
um, the temple of God, what does that context mean and how is God bringing that about? All right. Um, so, uh, we, uh, have a question here. First, the first person up here is Psychman. Psychman, good to see you. Um, uh, your bride took your name and received keys to your kingdom. Yes. Why would Jesus give his bride kingdom keys or us talking, taking God's name, meaning something different today? Um, Reverend, uh, thank you, Reverend Revelation. Thank you, Psychman. Um, so, yeah, I think that all of those are, are true. It's like when you, you're entering into a special relationship with someone who you marry. And so as the bride of Christ, we are entering into a special relationship with him. Uh, when you marry someone, you begin to share all things in common with them. And so you are sharing all things in common with Christ. When Paul makes a reference to the bride, he's talking about presenting yourself as pure um, and chaste that you are not overly involved in the world because we are the bride of Christ. And so all of those things, all of those things come into play. Um, possessions, yeah, the keys to the kingdom. Uh, we have the keys to the kingdom. I, I think that's in reference to, uh, it's, it is in reference to um, not access for us, but access for other people. God, I give you the keys to the kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail. Um, it's not just so that we can open it up for ourselves, but we know how to let people into the kingdom of God. All right. So thank you, Psych Man. Appreciate it. Uh, Manny, good to see you. Um, Manny says, um, if heaven is perfect and if God's dwelling place, how is it possible for Satan to still go back and forth to heaven? All right. So um, let's just think about, let's just think about heaven for a moment. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. There will be a new Jerusalem and God will dwell there with his people and Satan will not have access. So that's the future. If heaven is perfect and Satan fell from heaven, wandered the earth and had access to, to the throne, because when we see that, that Satan goes before God in the book of Job, God asks him, where have you been? I've been roaming back and forth. And God says, have you considered my servant? Uh, Job. And so they're access heaven, but they are roaming back and forth on the earth. It doesn't mean that that heaven, that God isn't perfect. It doesn't mean that heaven isn't perfect. Um, that Satan is the accuser of the brethren day and night. Does he, is, does he do that from heaven? Is Jesus our, the Bible says, our advocate? Is that happening in heaven? I, I don't know. I don't know if the accusations, um, maybe it's just, you know, God's omniscience, God is omnipresence, and Satan making accusations. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I don't think that Satan having access into heaven threatens the perfection of God at any point. And maybe just a misunderstanding, Manny, on, on, the access to heaven. Like we would think that, well, it's heaven. I mean, it's heaven. It could, only God could be accessed there. But obviously the angels of God can present themselves before him because it happened in the book of Job and Satan is numbered among them. And that ends up being that confrontation. So I don't know if I would say, um, yeah, I mean, what would be, what would be the passage that would help us to understand heaven as perfect and Satan somehow marring that perfection? 
All right. Thanks, Manny, for the question. I appreciate it. Uh, good to see you guys. If you're here for the first time, really glad to have you here. If you have a question, you can write the word question before your question, write out your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure it makes sense, add any references that you have, and then we'll get to them as we make our way through our Q&A. Uh, we have a question from Steve. Steve, good to see you. Always good questions, right? Uh, Steve says, uh, can we make this really simple? Once saved, always saved to me. This is like date setting, Christ's return, get ready, stay ready, then you'll be ready, endure until the end, my brothers and sisters. Um, so, yeah, can we make this, uh, can we make it simple? Um, endure to the end and you'll be saved? Yeah, uh, we can make it simple. Do, do, do denominations or Christians not want to bicker and fight about things? They will not want to make things more complicated. I think that happens a lot. I think there is a desire, God's desire, for us to be in one accord uh, with one another. And um, to certain people, these become, these become very important questions. Um, but you have to endure to the end to be saved. I mean, if you are saved, let's just say, if once saved, always saved is true, then you're going to endure to the end. So you got to endure to the end to be saved. If it is... I, if it's true for most Christians, but some will do some very severe things that will cost them their salvation, they didn't endure to the end. Now, some will claim that they were never really saved, but that's just not true. Having that relationship with God, it's kind of that, um, it's kind of that argument that that if you're given eternal life and it's taken away from you, you've never had eternal life. So it's more of a philosophical argument than it is a biblical argument in trying to find out what it says in Scripture. Um, I just go, I just go back, and this I think is very simple. I don't, I don't worry about that argument. I lean more towards we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, so I lean more towards one saved, always saved. Because if I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit and he's transformed me and he's doing a work within me and he truly does love me, then I, I lean more towards that. But the person that walks away is, no matter what your view is, you're going to see them as being away from Christ and so you're going to want to bring them back to the Lord. The only view that might not do that would be the view that believes that you're chosen unilaterally before the foundations of the world to receive God's grace and nothing you can do to stop that. And you're chosen unilaterally before the world to, to not be saved and nothing you can do can change that. Um, and that's not to say that Reformed theology or, or those extreme Calvinists don't evangelize because I'm not saying that they don't. I'm saying I, I think it's a temptation not to for them. And I think that it's been played out with a few people who have said, yeah, that while when I was a Calvinist, I didn't do any evangelism because I wasn't worried about it. I wasn't worried about people's soul. So yeah, I do think that we can make it really simple. And probably the simplest thing to do is abide in Christ. And, and you've got no question. You know, um, it's like if there's a cliff and I don't want to fall over the cliff, the best way to not fall over the cliff is to stay away from the edge of the cliff. If I don't want to fall over the cliff, but I'm walking around the cliff, climbing around the edge of the cliff, then I'm taking some risk. And the best way to stay away from that cliff is just to stay away from the cliff. And that's, I think, pretty easy. Just stay, you know, just abide in Christ. Just stay close to him. So Paul McGuire has a question. Um, I know Saul was God's anointed. David refused to kill him. 
But why did David mourn Saul's death? Saul made David's life stressful, at the very least, by the way. If someone hurts me, um, hurts me down, um, hunts me down, I would not cry, but feel relief. Yeah, the, um, the, re the, the way that David thought about Saul, knowing that God had called him, but also knowing that God was going to replace him with him, which he had been told. He had been anointed as king by Samuel when he was very young. And, and maybe David was thinking about himself. You know, the Bible says the way we judge is the way that we're going to be judged. And maybe it was David was thinking about the way that he wanted people to think him of him as a king. And so David was returning that to Saul. Maybe that's just one of the good attributes that David had. That David was like, you, this, this man was anointed by God, and therefore I will not, I will not raise my hand to him and wouldn't do it. Remember, he had two opportunities to kill him and wouldn't kill him. So he was, he was thinking differently. And, and maybe if we, Paul, if we have that understanding, maybe we'll feel that way. Now, David's life took some dark turns in the last days before Saul was killed. Um, also, Jonathan was killed at the same time Saul was killed. Maybe David's mourning of him was mourning more of what could have been had Saul been the kind of man that he, that he could have been it, instead of being the, becoming the, the kind of madman uh, who God won't even talk to. Uh, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of po potential that ends up getting lost and um, that might be, that might be part of it. And um, again, I mean, no one could crawl into David's mind to know exactly what he was thinking but I do think that this gives us some of the characteristic of, of David and the kind of man that he was. All right. So thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. Uh, we have another question from Jari. Jari says, um, is there a reason why God waited to create Eve or not just create female along with other life forms? God created male and female, but why not Eve and Adam at the same time? Thanks. I'm not sure that I have um, the answer to that, Jari. There's just some things that that we just can't really know. But if you look at the way it happened, God created Adam, and then God created the animals, then Adam named the animals and says there was none found compatible for him. So then when Eve came on the scene, he said, now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So there was an attraction to her that God had brought, made someone particularly for him that, that would be a helper in his life. And that would come alongside uh, to help him. So um, God does what God wants to do in the order that he wants to do it. Sometimes I think we could figure it out. And if we stop to look at it, we could go, probably better for God to make Adam and Eve the way he did. And maybe even for us, when we think about those who God has brought into our lives as our wives, that there's something special there. That they're made for us. And, and we for them, and we have that personal relationship with them. Uh, but as far as trying to answer for God, I don't know. There's no way um, that I can know that for sure. Um, Susan, uh, yes, you're welcome for addressing your question. I appreciate that. Um, Follow-up uh, from Psych Man. Um, 
If you did not want your bride to take your name in vain, would you want her to be a faithful wife or a voice saying, son of a, son of a Robert? If she breaks a nail, take, does, does not mean use. Um, yeah, I'm not quite sure what you're asking, psych man. I mean, just try to see if I can get this figured out. Um, if you don't want your bride to take your name in vain. Yeah, so taking uh, your name in vain doesn't always, doesn't always mean cursing, right? If somebody does, it does curse in God's name, it is taking God's name in vain. And I always like what um, uh, Ray Comfort says. Like when he's talking to somebody, he says, you ever taken God's name in vain? And when they say yes, they said, why would you, he says, why would you do that? You wouldn't take your mother's name in vain. Would you Would you take your mother's name in vain? And you usually go, no, I wouldn't. Why not? Because you love your mother, but it proves that there's a lack of a love for God. Uh, but you could take God's name in vain like Jacob did. When Jacob was asked by his father Isaac, how did you, how were you so successful so quick in the hunt? Well, the Lord was with me today. So that's taking his name in vain as well. Um... So, yeah, not quite sure. Maybe you can clarify your question a little bit more. So I'm not quite sure exactly what you're asking with that question, Psychman. All right, sorry, probably me. Maybe it may be really clear, but you know, I just can't get it. Uh, we have a uh, follow-up from Jari. Jari says, follow-up, uh, if the church is Christ's bride, who is the Father's bride and the Holy Spirit's bride, food for thought. Um, yeah, so again, Jari, every time that you see the Bible talking about um, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, there's a context to that. And we're learning something from the context. And when the Bible talks about us being the bride of Christ, there's a context to it. And you want to learn what the context is. Um, we are the body of Christ. So how are we the body of Christ and how are we the bride of Christ and how are we the temple of Christ all at the same time? Because a bride isn't a temple and a body. See? So it's the context that's telling us something specific about being the bride of Christ. Um, let me think of an analogy here. If, um, there, if we're sitting at a table and some guy's just eating just gross and sloppy and someone says uh, that guy's a pig he's not saying that he's a pig that he's an actual pig he's saying there's certain aspects of the way that he's acting that is a pig and so when you look at the references it's it's not like um when you look at the references for the bride of christ and i wish i would have looked them up um when you look at the references for the bride of christ they are used in a specific context trying to communicate something specific. And that's why in the Old Testament, Israel is mentioned as a wife, but also mentioned as an old man. And also mentioned as a strong man. And also mentioned as a, as, as a, as a daughter. So how can Israel be God's daughter and be God's wife at the same time? 
because the context is teaching certain things why it says that he's his wife. There's certain aspects of how Israel is like a wife and certain aspects of how he's like a daughter and certain aspects of how he's like an old man or a camel or a donkey. Israel is also compared to a camel or a donkey. So there's certain aspects where they're like a camel or a donkey, but it doesn't make them a donkey or an old man or a wife to God. But there are certain aspects in which the relationship is like that. Who are we? Who are we to God? So when you think about who, who, am, who am I? I've been made a child of God, been adopted into the family of God. So when I received him, I was adopted into his family. I believe in him and now he's my savior. He's my Lord. And when the Bible talks about us being the bride of Christ or Israel being the wife, it's talking about certain aspects how can I be an adopted child of God and be his bride? So there's certain aspects in these. It's like, it's like the use of metaphors and similes and direct statements that, that are used in certain contexts to be able to say things. And I think we just get ourselves in trouble when we take it out of context and just say, that's, that's all there is. Like, I'm the body of Christ. Okay, that's we, we yeah, well, well, he's the head, we're the body. He's giving us direction, but I'm also the son of God in that I've been adopted into the family. So hopefully, hopefully that makes some sense there, Jari. If not, it's just me not communicating what I need to be communicating here. All right, so we have a two-part question, at least two-part question from Albert. Albert says, hello, Pastor. Uh, do you see a distinction between fairness and justice? Are, are they the same? For example, many will say it wasn't fair that Jesus was crucified, but we know God is always just. Um, justice and fairness. Uh, so, yeah, I see a difference between justice and fairness. So, if everything in life is fair, then everything is going to be equal between people. But God doesn't mistreat us when he exalts one person and we're not exalted. So God's just in choosing to exalt someone above our position. And you might say, well, that's not fair. And in the strict sense of the word, it wouldn't be fair. If um, you give, you have three children. You give one of them a big bowl of ice cream, one of them a small bowl of ice cream, one of them a middle, you know, sized bowl of ice cream. Now all of a sudden you got problems because they have a real strong sense of fairness and they're going to look and go, it's not equal, that's not fair. But have you been unjust to bless more one than the other? It's like the guy that got paid for a full day's wage. And the guy behind him who worked a full day thought he was going to get more. But when he saw him, he was upset because he gave him a full day's wage. And the master said, I didn't do anything to you. You, you hired on for a full day's wage. I gave it to you. The fact that I gave another guy a day's wage for working a half a day doesn't matter. That's, that's just. He can do that. Is it fair? Meaning, were they equal? So I, th I think that we're just kind of getting down to certain aspects of what fair means and what just means. So, yes, God is always just. Um, God treats people differently. 
God doesn't treat everybody the same. In judgment, I don't think, or in righteousness. And certainly, if we've learned anything in life, God gives one ten talents, he gives one one talent. Was that fair? It's, it's how you end up using the word um, that really matters. But we do know that God is always just. Um, so let me just read your question and make sure I, I gave that an answer. Pastor, do we see a distinction between fairness and justice, which I do? Are they the same? No, I, I think they are They are different. And um, we use fair in a negative way to, um, you know, that wasn't fair. It wasn't fair for them to say that to me. So when you're talking about being justice and fair, I'm just seeing a comparison with fair and justice being what someone deserves. So that's that's the difference that I would see in it. I, I might change my mind once I went and looked up the definitions of both of those again. It's funny, you use words every day, but then when you start to get down to the nuance of the word, sometimes it can be hard to really get those things uh, sorted out. All right, so thank you very much for your question. I appreciate that. Uh, Joe, good to see you. We have a question from Joe about 1 Chronicles 21, 16. David sees the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven. Was this literal or just a vision? Well, let's go see if it tells us. First Chronicles 21.16. Let's go there. Let me go ahead and pull this up and get it on the screen for you. It's Chronicles 21.16. Um... All right, let me see if I can go back here a little bit and we'll read it a little bit in context. Woo! Wow, okay. The census of Israel and Judah. Okay. So, um, yeah. So, let me go ahead and put it up on the screen here. It says, um, now this is God's judgment on Israel after David took the census. And remember, God was wanting to judge Israel when, when this took place. We'd have to go back to read the whole thing in context to get all of it. It says, and God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. As he was destroying, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying, it is enough now, restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, which eventually becomes where the temple is at, right? Then David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between the earth and heaven, having his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell on their faces. And David said to God, was it not I who command, uh, commanded the people to be numbered? I am the one who has sinned and done evil indeed. But these sheep, what have they done? Lord, uh, uh, let your hand, I pray, O Lord, God, be against me and my father's house, but not against the people that they should be plagued. Um, again, I think David's heart's coming out here um, in where he's at. Uh, I have no way to know for sure if that was... Oh, go this way. All right, um, yeah, so Joe, thank you. I have no way to know whether that was a vision that God gave to David or whether David literally saw the angel of the Lord uh, with his sword drawn. It just doesn't say. 
And so there are just certain things we just don't know that we just, you know, the, the, the secret things belong to God, but the revealed things belong to us. So there are just certain things that we don't know. All right. So thank you very much. Um, let's see. Um, uh, Albert uh, has a continued question. Uh, part two. Albert says part two. In Matthew 21 through 16, a landover pays all of the workers equal even though they work different amounts of time. Yes, I talked about that. It seems to me that the issue of fair can be a stumbling point point for many. Yeah. No, I think that's true. But God did not treat if God if God treats you, if God said that if God's made promises in his word and he keeps all of his promises to you, then God has been just and God has been fair. But if to someone else he decides that he wants to bless them above what his word says. And so he blesses them more. Then God hasn't been unfair to you. Hasn't been unjust to you. God's been just in the way that he's treated you. By, the, by, by what he promised he would do, God ends up doing all of those things. If God wants to go above and beyond for someone else, that has nothing to do with us. And this is a human flaw, right? If... if I, and, and if anything, I got a friend who all the time says, did your mother tell you, did your mother teach you life is fair? Uh, when, when you end up saying something, you know, I mean, I can't believe how many times he actually will say that. Does did your mother tell you life is fair? And, you know, did your mother tell you life's fair, Albert? Um, because there's a lot of differences in, in life and we all deal with different things. And so, yeah, it can be an issue in a stumbling block, but God's teaching us in that in that parable in Matthew 20, the Lord's teaching us that how he treats someone else doesn't matter. What matters is that God's been fair to you, and that God's been just with you and hasn't done anything wrong to you by deciding to bless another person above the way that God has decided to bless you. All right, so we have a question from, this is, uh, is it Paya? Sorry if I butcher your name there. Um, maybe not based from decision, if you send and ask forgiveness from Jesus wholeheartedly, are you forgiven if that sin is not known to the person who you need to ask forgiveness? Um, so let me just let me just take a couple of minutes here uh, to to think out loud. So the Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I'm thinking that that confession is towards the is towards God. I think, Paya, this would be a need-to-know basis. Um, if I have been slanderous towards someone that they don't know about and I can make it right with the person that I actually slandered. So I got to go to that person and say, I'm sorry I said that about them. It wasn't true. And that I repent before God wholeheartedly that I don't think you need to go to that person and tell them that. Um, I had a gal years ago, um, there was a, a dispute between a couple of Calvary chapels in Arizona. We got involved in it as the affiliation for 
um, for Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, for the, for all the Calvary Chapel here in Arizona. And in the process of that, one of the pastor's wives just really started to hate me. And I had no idea. So I'd seen them periodically and I saw them at a pastor's conference. And she says, hey, the Lord's laid on my heart that I need to make it right. I've been hating you because of, you know, what happened back here, which was kind of crazy to me because we, as in, in looking at what we did, we sided with her husband. But maybe just in, in the questioning of it, she had some bitterness in her heart. But when she told me that she hated me, now all of a sudden, I had bitterness in my heart that I have to deal with. And still, even to this day, I think we're talking about fairness. I think how unfair that she hated me when I was just trying to do the best I could before God. Um, it would have been better for her not to tell me than to tell me. And I would rather have not known because then I wouldn't have had to have deal with it, which I ended up having to deal with it anyway. Um, but I, I, it would have been better for me had it not been dealt with, had, to, had not had to have been dealt with. Uh, if I, I'm thinking, yeah, um, maybe you just need to become more, more specific with, with what you are, with what you're asking here. Um, what, what exactly you mean with the person that you send against, um, if you need to make retrib retribution, then you would have to go to that person and tell them, Right. If you stole something from your boss, so you ask God to forgive you, and now you need to make retribution. Can you go make retribution without telling them? I think that there's certain ones, if you can, that you probably should. So I think it's got to be a need to know, and maybe we need to know a little bit more information before we can answer that completely. All right? So thank you. I appreciate uh, your question. Um, so we have a question from Eddie. This comes from Facebook, so it's a little longer. They give you more room to be able to ask things. Eddie says, I have a fiance who is not Christian. She said she is willing to go to church and, le um, and learn on it. On your advice, is it best to stay with her or best to depart from it? We've been together for about five months, but have planned to marry later on this year. But I do know 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what commune has light with darkness? All right, Eddie, thank you very much for your question. I appreciate that. Um, I would kind of put it back on you at this point. So if Jesus said, blessed are you, but more than Mary, Remember a woman cried out from the crowd, blessed is the breast that nursed you in the womb that bore you. And Jesus said, more than that, blessed are those who hear my word and keep it. So if God said there's a blessing in your life, if you hear God's word and you keep it, and you know that his word says that you are not supposed to be unequally yoked. So what should you do? I don't, I don't think you need me to tell you what to do. I, I, do you want the blessing of what God's word says or do you want to go against what God's word says? Right now, I mean, you guys are in it for five months. They're still endorphins, still the newness of a relationship uh, that's going on. She has different priorities than what you have. Um, when you get married, children come into play. And when children come into play, then 
all of a sudden you got to make a decision. Are they going to be raised Christian or not? And what isn't important to you guys right now will become important later on, which is why God says, don't be unequally yoked. And um, I heard Mike Winger talking about this uh, not long ago, and he talked about someone who had said, well, this isn't talking about marriage, it's talking about business. And I loved what he said. He said, that doesn't even make sense because now you're telling me you can be married to somebody and not be in business with them? <laughs> That's what unequally yoked meant. And so it's pretty clear that you, you have a yoke that's created for an animal to pull a cart. And if one of the animals is stronger than the other one, the cart ends up going in circles. It's very hard to steer and direct. And God would keep you out of unequally yoked situations. So I'm not telling you, you know, so you, you, you your advice is it best to stay with her or best to depart from her? My advice is to not be unequally yoked, to follow what the Word of God says. And that's hard to, that may be hard to hear because you've allowed yourself to get into a situation where your emotions are involved. Um, how would, how would I handle it? I would, I would want to really express to her what's going on. That what the Bible says, why, why it's important, because things are going to change as you get older. And then find out whether she wants to give her life to Christ. And if she doesn't, then it's the right thing to do to follow what the Word of God says and not be unequally yoked. So you've gotten yourself into a difficult situation, Eddie. Um, but you know what the Word of God says. And what pastor worth his salt would say, nah, don't worry about it. Go ahead and stay with her. <laughs> what pastor, what, what, not, not, you know, trying to handle the Word of God and doing what the Word of God says. So you know what the right thing to do is. And um, you want to do it in such a way that you don't break you don't, you don't wound her, but you talk through why the Bible says this, why you, what you believe, what you believe about it. And there might maybe no way to get out of it without there being something really hurt or hear her feeling like she's been unfairly treated, which we've talked about today. But um, this is a good point for all of us to, to learn at this, at this spot that we don't get unequally yoked. We don't find ourselves in a business situation or that we just are not unequally yoked. We have people that we're sharing Christ with, but those people that we let into our lives, God wants them to be those whom um, love the Lord. There's the passage in the Bible that says of a woman who has husband has died or left that she can remarry, but only in the Lord. So again, it's in the Lord that you, that you marry. So it, the Bible is very clear on exactly what direction we're supposed to get with that. All right, so thank you. Uh, thank you for your question. I, I kind of hope for your sake, Eddie, that that was kind of a test for me. Oh, how's he going to answer this one? Um, because it's not going to be easy. And you, you should pray about how God can really give you the right words to say. And I pray that she does come to Christ. But whether or not God wants you together, what, what, what we do know, you know, we try to figure out, does God's, God's will for me to marry that person? It's not God's will for you to marry her because she doesn't know the Lord. 
she's not in the Lord. So we can say that clearly. Um, if she knows the Lord, you still have to decide. You know, it's okay for you to marry her, but is this what God wants? Is this, is this really what God wants? And so you pray and you seek God. So, yeah, I do like um, Psych Man's response here to, to David, um, to Paul's question about David weeping over uh, Saul. Um, Psych Man says, yeah, Saul's death was tragic regardless of circumstances, and David was a man after God's own heart, so crying seemed quite reasonable. Uh, yeah, I agree with that, 100%. Psych Man. I do. Um, in the Psalms, you see how David cries out to God about fear and stress of the enemy because, yeah, and, and I mean, Paul's response is, um, David in the Psalms is talking about, you know, how bad things are for him as he's being chased all around the desert. And that's certainly true, but it still doesn't change the tragedy of someone whom he knew, whom he at one point was committed to as a servant, and then dying. And even though that person might have been evil or mean towards you, you could still have a heart for them. So I don't think that that, that falls out of line. All right. So thank you very much. Uh, we have another question uh, from Manny. Manny says, how can we witness to Jehovah's Witnesses who become hostile and willing to have a scriptural, honest discussion about who Jesus really is according to the Word of God? Um, well, I think... A few things come to mind, Manny. Uh, first of all, not casting your pearls before swine. So if someone is just going to mock and be upset and be angry, how effective is it to keep ministering to them there? I, I don't know if these are people you know, the people you have your relationship with, people who may be in the family, or if it's people, Jehovah's Witnesses, who are knocking at your door. But I know how I would handle someone who's knocking at my door and I realize this is going nowhere, I'm I'm like, I don't have time for this. I I would love to talk with you more, but since uh, you're hostile and I'm willing to have a scripturally honest discussion, then I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do this. So thanks very much for coming by. You know, Lord bless you. And of course, the Bible says, don't say, Lord bless you to the people that are bringing that in. I understand that. Um, but I'm just saying, you would be polite to them and I try to back out of that discussion. I don't think there's anything that you're going to be able to say if they're not willing to look biblically at what it is. Remember, they have their own Bible. Their Bible's been changed. Uh, and so, God's got to do something in their heart for them to be able to really want to have a relationship. All right? So thank you, Manny. I appreciate that. Um, we have a question from uh, Brandon. Brandon says, um, what does Paul mean in the scriptures? This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. For now, From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have had none. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7.29. Yeah. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7.29. So, Paul is talking about Paul's talking about himself being celibate and that if you can be celibate for the sake of the gospel, to be celibate for the sake of the gospel. And then he gets to this statement. And the, the writers of the Bible believe that Jesus is coming back at any moment. 
they said things like, uh, the time is short, so redeem, redeem the time because the time is short, which could be true one way or another. But they believed that Jesus was coming back at any moment. And uh, as he writes to Corinth, it's 54, 55. Uh, uh, Nero is the, is the emperor. I think from 54 to 57, if I've got my dates right. So he could have been looking at the things that were going on in the world and going, you know what? Time is short. And so now live as if you uh, don't have a wife. So let's just take a look at this and see what he could mean compared to what some other scriptures say as well. All right. So uh, verse 29 says, let me put this up on the screen for you. Um, and let's maybe read in a little bit of context. Uh, let's go all the way back to verse 25. So let's start there. So we're going to verse 25. This is uh, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 25. It says, um, now, converting, now concerning virgins, I have no commandments from the Lord, yet I give judgments as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. Probably should have started back further. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress. That it is good for a man to remain as he is. So, present distress. What does Paul mean by that? Is he talking about what's happening in Rome or the Roman Empire to Christians during that time? So if it is, if I'm right and Nero is the emperor, then that would be the present distress. This is good for a man to remain as he is. So it's good not to worry about marrying in the present distress. And then he says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you are, if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. So, not sure, not sure exactly what Paul's thinking about marriage there, um, or why he would say, but the, we will have trouble in the flesh. Maybe he is talking about the persecutions that are taking place. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as those that have none. Those who weep as those who do not weep, those who rejoice as those who do not rejoice, those who buy as those who do not possess. Those uh, who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of the world is passing away, but I want you to be without care, who is unmarried, cares for the things of the Lord. Yeah, so I think that there's a specific thing happening at this time, and the present distress is the key aspect of this verse. Um, it would be, it would be like if there was a heavy persecution happening of Christians. The the time of Pharaoh, and I just want to just let me do this. Let me just take a really quick. Let me just just check this out, Brandon, really quick. I just want to see um, uh, when when First Corinthians was written, and I think it was fifty, the early fifties. do this quicker on my my other phone. Let me do it this way. Let's see. When was the book of First Corinthians written? All 
right. So, yeah, 53 to 54 CE. So, and, and how ex exact they get to those dates, I'm not quite sure how they are. That's the time that, that um, Nero was the emperor. When was Nero emperor of Rome? So, 54 to 68. So, it's the very beginning of it. Um, so, had the persecution started yet when he had wrote these letters? What exactly is the present distress that Paul's talking about for the church that is there? I'm not sure. But we would have to know more about that present distress to know why he said that. And, Brandon, when we're thinking of that, um, when you say, what does Paul mean in the scriptures? Um, very short now, for those who have wives to live as though they have none. And you saw that he has a lot more things to say about the way that you live. The whole way that you're going to live is to be different. But he certainly doesn't mean that you don't have responsibilities to take care of your wife or to love her or all of those things. He, he's talking about the, the things that are priorities in the present distress, whatever that present distress is, which could very well be the persecution that that is happening and beginning to happen. All right. So thank you very much, um, Brandon. I appreciate that. Uh, so um, we have another question from Vivian. Vivian says, and good to see you, Vivian. Vivian says, what does the Bible say about tattoos or tattoos, as some like to say? I've read, heard different arguments for and against it. What are your thoughts? Yeah, thank, thanks, Vivian. I appreciate that. Um, I have my personal feelings, and I have my, and I have what the Bible has to say. So, in the Old Testament, they did tattoos on their bodies to false gods, and under the law, you were not to keep, you were not to have any tattoos. So, in the law, you weren't to have tattoos. But we know that we are not under the law, and so now we live under grace. And so, if you get a tattoo, and it's glorifying to God then I don't think that's a problem. Now, tattoos are somewhat addictive. And because I don't have them, I don't understand it. But I see it. You, My late wife got a tattoo. Um, keep yourself in the love of Christ. It was Jude, I think Jude verse 6, on her thumb. And uh, it just brought up conversations. She'd be getting her nails done. The person would inevitably say, what is, what is Jude 6? And she would tell him. Keep yourself in the love of God. And it would open up doors for her to be able to witness. But when she did get her tattoos, she wanted another tattoo. And, and that's kind of what I think happens. You get one. Maybe you get some attention from it. They look pretty good when they're first done. They fade and look duller as they get a little bit older. And so then you're like, I'm going to get another tattoo. And I got another plan for this tattoo, another plan for that tattoo. And if, it's, if you're free to be able to make those decisions and do it, you're free to be able to make those decisions and do it. How I feel about it personally doesn't matter. Um, and I'm not saying that I, I feel any differently towards someone that has a tattoo or doesn't or has a bunch of tattoos or doesn't because I don't. Um, I think those are disconnected from the, you know, people and, and how they are and who they are. Um, but the Bible does not give us any restrictions in the New Testament on tattoos. All right. So feel free to comment and argue with me if you want to. All right. I appreciate that. Um, <coughs> Sorry. Uh, so, uh, Paul has another question about the book of Jasher. Jash, Jasher. <laughs> question. 2 Samuel 1.18, book of Jasher, available for us to read. No. Um, what do you make of the book? Who wrote it? I'm going to assume the book of Jasher was written by Jasher. 
Um, we don't know. <coughs> Excuse me. We don't. We don't know really what the book's about. So there is a book of Jasher that was written later on. It was not the book that was spoken of in Second Samuel one eighteen. So we don't have access to it. We don't. We don't know what it is. It's not like the book of Enoch, which is brought up in the book of Jude, and we have access to the book of Enoch. And the, the book of Jasher is that we have that was written. I don't know when it was written. Sometime 1,800 years ago or something like that. I can't remember exactly. But it's not the same book. And so we don't have access to it. And so who wrote it? It's a, it's a um, pseudofigra, which means they're writing it in someone else's name. So we don't know. Um, I, pseudofigra, somebody made it up. I have no desire to read it and see what it says. I mean, maybe some good stuff in it. I don't know. Um, I just don't want to read it because I'm not interested in something that wasn't the real book of Jasser that was mentioned in the Bible. All right. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, we have a few more minutes left. We have another question from Psychman. Psychman says, um, years ago, you gave an awesome teaching about a guy with bad feet who ate dinner with David. Ah, if you recall. Can you talk about the bad-footed guy and David? Uh, sure. Uh, so this is um, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth is lame. And when Jonathan died, we talked about Jonathan and Saul dying on Mount Gilboa at the same time, uh, his, his maid picked him up, ran with him, his house, you know, his, his, his babysitter, ran with him, tripped, and his, his legs were broken, and he became crippled. They didn't heal properly, and he became crippled. And so, um, he hid, because in those days, when there was a kingdom change, when from Saul's family to David's family, you would kill the people from Saul's family, no matter who they were. And now I'm saying that was right, I'm just saying that's what happened. And so he was hiding, fearful, that David would kill him. And David one day said, is there anybody alive that I can keep my word to Jonathan? Because Jonathan and David had made a vow to one another that they would be gracious to their families if ever he became king, that David would be gracious to Jonathan's family if he ever became, and, and, and Jonathan knew he was gonna become king, and said, be gracious to my family. And uh, so David sent soldiers to go and get Mephibosheth. And I talked about how much Mephibosheth felt when the soldier showed up and David's calling for him. And then when Mephibosheth shows up, David says, you are now going to stay in my household. You're gonna eat at my table. And so he took in Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who was crippled and brought him into his household, which is really, really interesting too. Uh, for, for another reason that I just thought about. And that is, when David took Jerusalem, the, the Jebusites mocked him and said, we could put our lame on the wall and blind and they would be able to defend the city. So they felt like their city was so fortified. Um, but Joab found a way in through the tunnel, probably Hezekiah's tunnel area, and they were able to get in the city and to take the city. And so David made a statement, or there's a statement made that that's why there were no lame or blind um, in the house of David. 
But now David, for the sake of Jonathan, brings in Mephibosheth and puts him at his table. And um, so there you had David's sons, Absalom, beautiful, um, Solomon, wise, and Mephibosheth. You know, here would come Mephibosheth. He's crippled and he's in the king's house. And it's a picture of God's grace and how God can be so incredibly gracious. So yeah, I do love that Bible study. And um, gosh, it's been a long time, psych man, since I did that. But I do love that Bible study. And it's such great lessons as to, as to God's grace towards us, because so many of us are just Mephibosheths, right? So we have a question from Michelle. And Michelle says, um, hello, um, Pastor Robert. I struggle to know God's will for me and what my role is as a single woman, a, uh, a gift of singleness in the unity of the church. Okay, uh, God's will um, as a woman who is, has the gift of singleness in the church. Boy, what a, what a good question and one that I, I've never really thought about. Um, as your gift of singleness, I've always considered that the ability to be able to respond when someone needs help. You're, you're not encumbered by relationships, so you're able to go here and go there when you're looking at doing things for God. Um, a, a single woman's ministry, what, what God's will would be for a single woman that has the gift of singleness. In the, in the church, in the unity of the church. Um, gosh, I would think, yeah, I would think there would be a lot of ways in which you could make decisions on being able to, to help and to make yourself available. And I think sometimes, Michelle, it's stepping out of small things that helps direct you to where God wants to take you and how God wants to use you because God could use you in great ways. But every person that God uses in great ways starts off, at least genuinely, where God is really using them, starts off doing small things. So looking for opportunities to be able to come alongside of someone and help them, um, that you might be able to make a meal or visit someone who is, is elderly or lonely, um, that you might be able to uh, be available where some people might not be available because they have families. So I would look for small ways to do that and get involved. And from there, uh, allow God to steer you into what God has for you. I also would like, Michelle, for you to give me a little bit of time to think on this. It may be one that I come back and use as a first initial question or deal with it a little, a little bit later on because I really haven't thought about it from that perspective too much. Um, I've thought more of someone that has the gift of singleness having time to have that close relationship with Christ and that they're having the gift of singleness in, in order to cultivate that close relationship with Christ. But as far as serving other people, um, you're just not encumbered. And let me, yeah, give me, let, let me have some time to think on that and we'll, we'll come back to it again. All right, Michelle? But I do really appreciate your heart and like I said, I think getting involved in any way that you can, it's just like when you first get involved in, in ministry, it's like I, I began, I believe God is calling me to teach. I wanted to teach. 
And I started teaching in junior high Sunday school class. And absolutely, and, and some of it wasn't good, but absolutely loved it and had a great relationship with the kids that were there. But great question, great question. Kind of a stumper question for me, a different kind of a stumper question. Um, so um, we have a question from uh, Kimberly, follow-up pastor. I think the workers of the vineyard are us. Some come to Christ early in life and some come later in life, but we all have the same reward salvation thoughts. Yeah, I think that's a great thought, Kimberly. Um, yeah, I think that's a great thought. Uh, we're living at different points for Christ, being able to do different things for him. We do have um, rewards. If we, if we can do our rewards correctly, <clears throat> that makes me think of a difference between someone who walks with Christ, is saved on their deathbed, or, or been able to walk with them their entire life. There are some rewards um, that are different. Um, yeah, I think, I think that what God was saying there to us is don't worry about what's on someone else's plate. Just be thankful for what's on your plate. That's what I think the parable is about. I don't necessarily think it's extrapolating to one who's been saved for a year or 10 years. And that person may have wished that they had met the Lord a long time ago and been able to walk with them for a long time. Or somebody may, may, may meet Lord, the Lord in the end of their lives. I don't see that as the context. Um, I, I, like I said, I think he's just telling them, just stop looking at other people's plates. <laughs> you know, Just be thankful for what God's given you and that God's been fair in what he's given you. And that's what I think that the Lord is talking about. Again, you know, could be wrong, right? Um, and so we have a follow-up comment from Jari. 501. So we're going to be wrapping these things up here pretty soon. Uh, Follow-up comment. I think it was fair with the 10 talents because the man with one talent wanted it and had more than he wasted than uh, them as well. Just a thought. Yeah. So that's a, um, a, a different um, parable, Jari. So you've got the, the, the ten, 10 talents, the five talents, the one talent guy. One talent guy buries his um, probably because he's lazy. The other, this is a different parable. It's a man who goes out and hires people. And he hires somebody to work all day. Then he hires people to work a half day. Then he hires people to work just a few hours. And then he pays everybody a full day's wage. And the guy that worked all day is upset. And basically, the, the, land, the, the, the guy who hired him says, I hired you. And I paid you what I hired you for. I've done nothing wrong to you. And so God is giving us that, that idea that what God does with other people isn't about what God does with me. That God's fair with me if he's keeping his word with me. All right? So um, let me just look here, see if we got any other questions. Um, good to see you, Vance. Uh, so, um, uh, yeah, let's see. Maybe, maybe not. I'll, I'll, I'll get this a little bit later on and be able to look back through here um, near the end. But I appreciate seeing you guys. Good to have you here. Uh, we have a service in an hour. And it is on Revelation chapter 13. It is the rise of the Antichrist. So we're going to be talking about the Antichrist today, some very specific things about him, uh, what we can learn from it, and uh, there's some good application. So this is Revelation chapter 13, the first 10 verses. Next week we'll be talking about the false prophet. We saw the dragon last week who was Satan. So we see the dragon, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Um, these three that make up the head of that government. So we'll be talking about that tonight. Uh, stay close to the Lord. 
uh, delight in the Lord so he can give you the desires of your heart? Remember, if you delight in the world, you're going to desire the things of the world. If you delight in the Lord, you're going to desire the things of the Lord. If you walk in the spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you walk in the flesh from the flesh, you'll reap corruption. So walk in the spirit, delight in the Lord. Um, may God work in your heart. May God be gracious to you. May you find yourself really, really close to him. Um, I'm out. We'll see you guys um, next Saturday for our next Q&A, Lord willing. God bless you. Love you guys.